It's party time, Mom. Welcome back to Studio 22, the Chad Prather Show, bringing you another episode of fun-filled, fabulous information and things that you need for life. I want you to go over to YouTube right now, search the name Chad Prather. That is me. Subscribe. Hit your notification bell so that you know every time we get a new video posted on YouTube. That's where we want you to go so we can count the numbers because we're capitalists and we like to sell sponsorships. And I do not apologize for making money. Also, go to where podcasts are provided. You can go to Apple Podcasts. You can go to Stitcher, SoundCloud, I think. And you can, I guess, Android. I don't know. I just go to Apple Podcasts. Leave a rating and a review. It's got to be a five-star one. If you got a, if you got a mouse in your pants and it's making you irritable, don't go leave a review. We don't do one-stars around here. We don't do two, three, two or three-stars either. We do five-star ratings because we are winners. At the helm of the starship that is Studio 22, the puppet master himself, Mark. Hello. What's up, brother? Not too much. You know what you look like right now? What's that? You look like a turd with headphones on. That's what you look like. like bearded oh, wow. Turd. Okay. I know. Okay. <laughs> I'm always just want to get a rise things have progressed out. here. I want to get a rise out. I'm, I, I'm super angry right now. I have to tell you. <laughs> Do you have really white privilege? Mad. Uh, I don't think so. You don't just, think so? Just Sean, uh, Sean. Bougie Sean. Bougie. Yeah, yeah he's bougie's more got all. Than I do. Bougie's the only black man you know with white privilege, I'm yeah. telling you. Yeah. Oh, guy, that guy, Candice, queen of the Ethiopians, the bright and shining spot of my life. Yeah, what's going on with you, girl? Not much. Busy day. What Busy is day? With, I have the two most quiet. A director and EP, y'all are so quiet. We just gotta get it done. You know what I'm excited about? Yes. What? When you get married, I'm going to officiate because she's Ethiopian and her father's already taken seven cows. Right. For her betrothed. Did you just call me a cow? No, that, you're a seven that, cow woman. I, you were purchased by your. <laughs> that's how it is in your culture. This conversation is not going well. For you. <laughs> you were purchased from the person your father promised you to. Something like that. A I don't dowry. Know. They met at the well, drawing water. <laughs> seven cows is a lot. Okay. Ten is more. <laughs> you don't have ten cows. You can't afford a single cow no, I party. I couldn't afford to feed them, but I can afford to eat them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when you're using my debit card. Speaking of which, I need that back. <laughs> <laughs> you're a fool. Mm. Oh. Okay, folks, it's party time, Mom. Stay horned, everybody. Hot news, Natalie, hanging out again. The Texas legend, Steve Helms. What's over? I mean, that's a hi, buddy. Uh, hi, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> All right, let's talk about cutting throats. Ex CIA, right here, Dan Is that Gabriel. Former. Wouldn't that be former CIA? Why don't you shut up over there? Okay. Is this your, I don't know. Is this called the Party Foul Show? Is it? Is it? Well, it, no. It, it could be. Yeah. <laughs> Coming for you, Beck. Glenn Beck. That guy. Dan Gabriel. You flew in, dude. We did All this morning. DC. Well, I'm so glad you I did. I never get up at 6 a.m. <laughs> Only Marines get up at 6 a.m. CIA guys. We CIA, stay up, we no. stay up late. Y'all, that's because <laughs> CIA guys, you have to be, you know, y'all are night owls. Y'all that's are right. vampires, so you can put on the tuxedos and go out there and shoot people. That doesn't face. happen at 6 a.m. No. No. Ever, ever. No. <laughs> yeah. James Bond. I love it. You know, that's the misconception. I think that everybody's seen too many movies. Or maybe. Maybe. There's one more they need to see. There's a lot of truth. There is. There's That's one right. more they need to Executive see. Executive <laughs> producer of this brand new film right here. You can get it on DVD and on Blu-ray. Let me see if I can get the glare off of it. Mosel. 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 How do you say it? How do you Mosel. Yeah, Mosel's good. Yeah. I always want to say Mosel, but I know that's not right. Mosel. That is an aerial view of Mosel. It says, uh, hey, for the nation to endure, a city must die. Tell me about the movie. Yeah, well, that, first of all, that view is from a, uh, a DJI drone, a Phantom yeah. 4 that you can buy at Best Buy. Um, and that is something that not only ISIS used to drop grenades with essentially feather cocks on them, uh, turning them into a weapon of war, but also actually the Iraqi security forces turned around and did the same thing. So that's just a little back note on that, that first, view. First of all, Dan, you cannot say words like feather cocks around feather cocks. party foul, Steve. You can't, okay? Uh, it made me automatically think about shuttlecocks. <laughs> I think you it's know, the same thing. No, it's completely different. It's completely different. So tell, tell me about this movie. Tell me, an Iraqi journalist joins an army of uneasy allies and unfree. Like you, this is this is legit. I'm reading the cast. I'm reading the people who put this thing together, liberating the city of Mosul from Islamic State. What's the story there? You've seen Apocalypse Now. Yep. This is Apocalypse Now, in real live form, documentary form. 
uh, except we're in Iraq and mm-hmm. we're going from Baghdad to Mosul up the Tigris River. Yeah. And it's basically it's the story of the last battle of the Iraq war. Yeah. Uh, and it, it takes place between October 2016, July 2017. Uh, and as that as that journalist you just mentioned, Ali Mullah, who's our essentially our tour guide, our narrator, um, as he kind of takes us on this journey up the river, he meets all these strange people and they get stranger and stranger. Uh, the closer that we get to Mosul and spe- specifically West Mosul, because that's where really they were really dug in. Um, and it's it, it's really the story of the Iraqi people, the Iraqi security forces coming together to feed ISIS in, in Mosul. Uh, significantly, Mosul being the second biggest city in Iraq. Uh, we're also at the crossroads of two big anniversaries. So actually it was yesterday uh, was the two-year anniversary of Mosul being liberated. And then five years ago, it was the five-year was the five-year anniversary of the uh, ISIS capturing Mosul. Yeah, you talk about Iraqi freedom fighters and folks wanting to liberate their country and things like that. Let's destroy some misconceptions that are there because I know that in the average mind, a lot of times you think Muslim or you think Islam, you immediately think bad guy, you think you know terrorist, you think, but that's simply not true. I mean, you've got people who have their own sense of nationalism and pride in their country, and they want to see it liberated at the same time. What's your perspective on that? Uh, we've got that guy that you just described on camera. His mm-hmm. name is Captain Allah. Um, he's a Captain Shia. Allah. Captain Allah. Allah. Is he allowed to have that name? Uh, it might be a different pronunciation, <laughs> or maybe that's just the, what he told us his name was. Yeah. Um, but nevertheless, this is a Shia. He's probably 35, 36. He's married. He's a lawyer. Um, he's a kind of a warrior poet in the sense that he's, he's an intellectual. He had a life before this all began. Um, and he, he came from Basra. So mm-hmm. Basra is in the southern part of Iraq. and wasn't directly impacted at all by what had happened with Mosul uh, or ISIS. And he decided to join up with the Iraqi security forces, just like many veterans here have signed up with the military. And it's, it's out of a sense of duty, out of a sense of concept of a nation state and what his country can be. Yeah. And one of the things he talks about is, you know, he, he goes back to the example of Japan after after World War II and how that nation was completely destroyed and then rebuilt in a very new image. And so he's able to get across, I, I think, very well, very poignantly, his concept of what Iraq should be. And it, it, it's exactly what you said. It's this it's this fight for freedom, um, uh, the, the idea of a, a patriotism that it's not necessarily a U.S. patriotism or an English patriotism. It's, in this case, Iraqis coming together uh, against the force that's just clearly abhorrently evil yeah and i know i know the average person who might be interested in the movie and, and the average american who looks at it and they're they're like okay why do i need to know that story why is that important well i think we've seen a lot of good war movies frankly uh out of iraq and afghanistan we've seen a lot of good literature um we, we were just talking about scott Houston, who's got an amazing book echo and ramadi um so there's a lot of good literature the, the difference with this film, and I think what sets this story apart, is that this is really through their eyes. This is through the eyes of Muslims, Arabs, specifically Iraqis. Um, and it reminds us that terrorism doesn't just affect Christians in New York City. It affects right. these people. And the people in Mosul were uh, the unfortunate um, test cases in this experiment of just – uh, an evil that probably we haven't seen in five or six hundred years. I mean, yeah. the things that happened, we can get into that in a minute, uh, in Mosul during the, the three or four years that ISIS was running the town uh, are just beyond comprehension. Yeah, that's that's the thing that you have to get into. This is my perspective, at least my take on it. You got to get into the mind of your enemy. You got to get into how not only how they operate, but how they think. Because I've said for years, I said, you know, this this war on terror is a very difficult one to win because it's an ideological war. It's a religious war. It's a spiritual war to them, especially the idea of jihad, the idea of of, you know, the infidel and, and you know, destroying that the land of the infidel. This, this is this is an ideological thing. This is a theological war. But the problem is when we think theological we, we we think in elements of of peace and love, right? And they a lot of times will proclaim that, but again, they got to get rid of you and me in order for it to 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 propagate. Well, good luck them doing that. First of all, right? Uh, but yeah, we I mean Christianity is uh you know as we know it for the last six seven hundred years it's a peaceful peaceful religion. We think of Jesus and peace and love and um and and frankly western uh, ideas of how we should um carry out our relationships with our fellow mankind but in this society uh there have been times and and unfortunately in the past 20 30 years it's becoming more and more frequent 
where there's a vacuum of power and an ideology like this is is able to just latch on to pre-existing conditions and it's it's not just religion by the way it's also economics and, and politics but what happens is they you, you pull this umbrella of uh, an extremist uh, wahhabist or salafist ideology yeah. on top of those pre-existing conditions and then you have um isis running the second largest city in iraq not to mention what they were doing in syria across the border yeah and that, and that's I caught hell back in 2017. I think it was 17. Isn't that when the Paris attack was? And and I at that point in time, you know, Obama had kind of put some praise on Iran publicly and these kind of things. And I said, you know, I'm I'm paraphrasing here. CNN jumped all over this tweet, right? They they Pierce Morgan even was talking about this tweet where I said, and you can still go out and find headlines that are out there where I said. Um, you know, Islam is not a religion of peace. They, they can proclaim it. And I'm not saying there's not peaceful Muslims, but by and large, by its nature, not a religion of peace. Um, and those who are moderates would be looked at by the Wahhabis as infidels themselves. So, you know, and, and I was talking about, you know, you've got to con- if you're going to condemn what happened in Paris, you've got to condemn the praise that's being put on the people who are responsible for it. That's coming from, you know, at the time, the president. And oh my God, it turned into it just blew up and went crazy. But but they asked me about that, and I said, "Well, I don't see any place on the planet throughout history where Islam, where it is the major focal point, where it is the government and it is the driving force, where there has been any lasting peace. Maybe Malaysia, maybe Indonesia, maybe maybe. But ultimately, what's your perspective on that? Well, I lived and worked in Indonesia for three years. That's a great example." Um, Indonesia, although it's the largest Muslim country in the world, I think it's like 200 million Muslims mm-hmm. out of maybe the population is 250 or something. Um, Indonesia, uh, going back to their constitution from the 50s or 60s, was really driven by a, a concept called Panchasila, which actually actually means the complete opposite of just an Islamic uh, version of government or religion. Uh, and it specifically identifies kind of this pluralist uh, approach to government that in, that include that's supposed to include Hindus, mm-hmm. of which they were the ones that were there first. And in right. Indonesia, you can go to Borobudur uh, and all of these amazing um, landmarks uh, across the across the island of Java and see them firsthand. Bali is, of course, a Hindu um, island. Uh, so Panchasila was really intended to be um, a governing governing structure and a concept for their nation that was to include not only Islam, but also other religions. So that is actually built into their Mm -hmm. uh, government. Now, we've seen Islamic extremism in Indonesia. That's, of course, why I was there. Uh, We saw what happened in Bali. We see Aceh is actually, which is on the very, very uh, western part of um, Sumatra. It's uh, it's maybe more like Saudi Arabia than than Bali, if you will. Um, But I I think to your point, what what you mentioned about the moderate Muslims is, Mm -hmm. is the key. And that's where we need to focus because, number one, they need to be our allies, and we need to work with them uh, to fight this and to combat this, and we do. And uh, people who have worked overseas uh, have had the opportunity to work with uh, veteran, with uh, Iraqi translators or Afghan translators that have become now American citizens because they, they put in their time and blood and effort working with U.S. forces for, for you know the greater good um, and have been able to come over here on different visa programs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they are the most loyal Americans that you'll ever meet. And we had the great opportunity to meet some of these guys in, in Tampa. Um, so that's the first thing I would say. Second is that we also have to put pressure on the, on the moderates because they need to hold them accountable. They need to hold yeah. the extremist side accountable when these types of things happen. So obviously we see our, our congressman from uh, Minnesota is uh, – you know, she's an example of that's not how to that's not how yeah. to represent your religion, yeah. not make excuses for, for people that are doing you know dastardly acts. But you need to call them into account, not to blame the United States for it. Yeah. Ilan Omar, we could go on and on and on for a, for a minute about that. But and we do quite often. But don't don't turn me into angry white male <laughs> right now. Um, <laughs> it, it gets rough, brother. Um that has been my biggest issue on the, on the side of the moderates it has been whenever these things happen, you've got to be our allies. You've got to speak up. You've got to speak out. You've got to speak against this thing. But so many times they don't at all. Very few do, And uh, which I have my opinions on that. I'm sure you probably have your opinions on that, whatever, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, there, there it is. I mean, you look across the country. I read a lot. I read a lot of nonfiction. I read a lot of fiction. I like to read as as Glenn Beck has he put the word in my head faction. 
you know, stuff, you know, books that, that are a fiction story, but there's a lot of information in there that you're like, dang, I'm really learning something from, from reading this story because it's based in fact and ideas. So that being said, how far is the world of fiction from what's going on in the world today? When we think of in the, from a CIA perspective, when you're thinking training camps and you're thinking recruitment for Islamists and for terrorists and all these things, you know, when you talk about cells, because I because I've got friends in the Department of Defense, I've got friends that are very high up, have access, and they're like, yeah, right now we're targeting about two hundred cells that are in the U, you know, in the U.S. or in its allied countries. Which I mean, it's scary when you think about it. The the idea that we could make a movie that was essentially modeled and built around the the structure, the story structure of Apocalypse Now, mm-hmm. uh, but in this case is is a true story. Mm-hmm. I, I think might tell us all we need to know. Uh, it's it's a scary time. Um, the 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 groups that were involved. Uh, I'll say this. This is kind of on the positive side. The groups that were involved in Mosul in the taking back of Mosul from ISIS. So this is again to just kind of put a time frame on it. October twenty sixteen through. July 2017, uh, this is a success story. Mm-hmm. So this is exactly what you're talking about and, and hoping and advocating for, which is uh, moderates, different parts within uh, Iraqi or Arabic or Muslim society coming together uh, to fight this violent extremism. And ultimately, it was it was successful. Um, the military operation that, that was uh, kind of designed to, to guide this effort, and it did start, we have to give Obama his credit where due, um, Operation Inherent Resolve mm-hmm. started in the fall of 2016 um, when 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 essentially this effort happened. I'm sorry, it, it started in the fall of 2014 after ISIS had taken over Mosul. Uh, but for about two or three years, the U.S. government, what they did is they worked with the Iraqi security forces to train and to equip them uh, and to, to provide air support, certainly, mm-hmm. uh, so that they could fight their own fight. Ultimately, that's what needs to happen, because because we can't we can't be the policemen of the world. I, yeah. I mean, everybody from George Bush to Donald Trump agrees with that. Yeah. Let's look at today's USA Today. So, and we're dating this a little bit. So, by the time this comes out, obviously this this is you know this is we're we're filming this on you know the, today's the eleventh, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, seven eleven. So, <laughs> the, the headline right here, USA Today. You brought this in. Let's I did. If I can get in here. Iraq Afghan wars not worth it. Veterans say that's the USA Today headline today. What do you think about that? I didn't read the article because I didn't want to. Um, Maybe that's a defense mechanism. But what I did do is I I jumped down to the breakdown between Iraq, Afghanistan Mm -hmm. and Syria. And you can see if you take that headline and and you want to understand country by country, where where does that fall? Uh, I I think what it shows is they are the veterans are most disproving of Syria mm-hmm. uh, and least disproving of Iraq, which I think is interesting. Uh, and again, this is compared to the, the average U.S. population um, in, in the poll. Uh, so, you know, to, to combine the three of them in, into one poll question is is tough to say, yeah. you know, well, was Iraq worth it and Afghanistan not worth it? And then throw Syria in there when, you know, we didn't have that many troops committed there to begin right. with. Um, here's what I can tell you. I didn't join the CIA to go to Iraq. I joined the CIA because I was interested in what was happening in Afghanistan. I was interested in what happened on 9-11 and making sure that that didn't happen again. And I think we're at a place right now in our country's history all these years later where it's hard to look back at Iraq and say that that was a wise strategic decision. Yeah. Um, I mean, that might be the only thing that Nancy Pelosi and Donald Trump agree on. Right. Um, so, sure, there's there's a handful of neocons that would still say, yeah, it was, it was a good idea, but – um, I don't think so. Yeah. And, and one one example I give you is the the growing influence of Iran. So now the the new the new boogeyman is Iran, of course. And we see everything that that's happened this summer. You know, we're um, uh, we're, we're getting into conflict in the Gulf of Oman, the Straits of Hormuz. Uh, Iran's influence has grown as a direct result of our involvement in Iraq. So even if you look at it as well, we fixed one problem, that being Saddam. Uh, we've now enabled another problem. Yeah. And I don't think there's too many people that would say Saddam was more of a threat than what we're what we're looking at with Iran, which is a soon to be nuclear, you know, yeah. uh, nuclear weapon holding country. Do you think that's inevitable that they'll get the nuclear weapon? No, I, I, I have a strong opinion on that. My obviously. But no, do you think conflict with Iran is inevitable? It's a great question. Um, 
I don't think it is inevitable. I, I think what I, I think the danger is if there's a mistake, yeah. uh, a miscalculation, and, and that's that's the risk um, because it doesn't make sense for the Iranians to get involved in the conflict, and it doesn't make sense for the U.S. to. And I don't think that that's uh, in in uh, President Trump's heart to get us involved in, in a, right. a, a quad by. That's that's explicitly what he was opposed to. Um, I think actually there may be a model in, in kind of how we've seen him deal with North Korea. Mm-hmm. Um, North Korea, of course, was never supposed to have nuclear weapons either. And that was the stated policy of going back to Clinton and before and through Bush. And, yeah. But yet they do. Um, so, I, you know, I, 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 the question that I had asked to you was, you know, whether whether Iran is going to have nuclear weapons. I think eventually they will. Yeah. Uh, I don't think we're going to go to war over it. Uh, I think we're going to try everything that we can do short of going to war. Yeah. To prevent that from happening, but I don't. I don't see that happening. North Korea has nuclear weapons. I agree. I think what we do is we 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 uh, we send Kim Jong Un and the boys over into Iran and let them have it. Because Kim Jong Un, he's 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 hankering for a battle, but he's not going to fight Buddy Trump. Trump's his buddy now. They're eating McDonald's together. That, that's a real uh, real politique view of the world, and I, and I like it. I, I always said, instead of evading Iraq, you know, in 2002, what if what if we had got Saddam to get bin Laden? You know, <laughs> right. we, might, we might have had bin Laden by 2005 right. and could have skipped Iraq. Yeah, and that's the thing. You know, you look at it, – they're mixed opinions, and, you know, here's my jack-leg opinion as far as Saddam Hussein. I'm like, you know, every time you create that power vacuum by deposing a leader or something like that – you look at Libya. Libya is another situation. You know, Gaddafi's that. It, 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 while these guys are megalomaniacs, they're also a point of stability and security for these countries. It's a matter – because you, once you do that, there's no such thing as a political void. There's no such thing as a spiritual void. There's no such thing as an ideological void. Something's going to rush to fill it whenever you remove that. So I can see where that element, you know, because these guys, you know, they're polling these veterans who are saying, was it worth it? And you, if you weigh the cost versus benefits of something like Iraq or Afghanistan, you know, I can see where they're coming down on that. You know, I see why they're thinking the way they're thinking. Right. If that's the criteria you're judging it by. Well, well let's look at the macro, too. So starting in Afghanistan, um, I mean, with, with all the lives that have been lost there, with, with all the uh, veterans that have served there. The fact of the matter is it's very likely within the next two years that the Taliban is going to be in a power-sharing arrangement government yeah. uh, with the, the current government in Afghanistan. Yeah. So if, if I told you that in November of 2001, it, it just wouldn't make sense. Yeah. That we, Well, then what was the last 18 years about? Um, that the same guys that we wanted to remove are, are now back sharing power. And it's it's the same it's the same kind of emotion that I've picked up on. I have an opportunity to take Mosul uh, around the country and, and screen it for veterans, which is something happened in uh, in, Ju- in June of 2014 when ISIS took over Mosul. And what happened was veterans that served in Iraq sat up and said, what the hell was that all about? I mean, wh- yeah. why was I there? I mean, because th- this this was to the extreme of this exact ideology that we said that we were fighting now controls the second largest city in the country. Mm-hmm. So it, it wasn't like it was a compromise resolution it was a it was a full-on strategic and tactical loss uh in in terms of what they had um been asked to do and what they had sacrificed for so i think it was very disorienting and very disheartening for veterans and the the, what i hear is when they see that when they see when they see mosul uh, and they see the iraqis doing what they're supposed to be doing and should have been doing 10 years ago yeah, they're like good on you, man. I'm I'm happy to see that that has been the outcome. I'm happy to see that what I did there in '04 or '05 or '07 has finally come to the Iraqis taking responsibility. The question of Mosul, of course, is will that continue? Yeah, and that's the thing. And I know I can I can read the comments without even reading the comments. People are sitting here watching this. They're listening to it, and they're already texting. This is not saying that we dishonor or disrespect the people who were in Iraq or Afghanistan. That's not the point. The issue, again, is because God bless the folks who have fought those battles, fought those wars. You know, we got a lot of friends, a lot of mutual friends who who were part of that, and God bless them. Lives lost and everything. The sacrifice is not taken in vain when we talk about that. But we're just talking about the geopolitical aspect of what this, this was worth. What was the cost of this thing? You joined the CIA. How hard is that to do? It must have been pretty easy when I did it. Yeah. Uh, it was after yeah. 9-11, and— uh, 
I think all I did is I went and I studied Arabic in Cairo for six months, and they're like, "You're an overachiever. You're in." You know, I want you to look at Party Foul Steve over there. Just look over your shoulder at Party Foul Steve. Do you think they'd take him because he's now jobless? I, I think no, it, I have a job till Monday. Two thousand <laughs> back. I think in two thousand one he might have been a candidate. <laughs> but like you'd never see his ass coming. Like right, you would never. Like he doesn't look like James Bond. Like there's literally nothing James Bondish about him. Nothing. Nothing. There's nothing. The, about, the, word, the, the word you're looking for is non-threatening. Non-threatening. Thank you. <laughs> That's the way it That's, should be, though. Well, He's I correct. guess, please, but you have to please. finish the job. If the ice pick is in their ear, you got to put apply pressure. <laughs> cut the throat, Steve. Always. Could please, you cut a man's throat, Steve? I want everyone to underestimate me. Could you do some point. wet work? Could you get into some black ops? Yes. Yeah. I Down and dirty. You could. Yeah. I think. I hope. <laughs> he started so strong. He just needs yes, an opportunity. Maybe. I think. I hope. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Maybe. God, the so, confidence is yeah, over freaking you know, well, You know, my time in the sandbox was, you know, pretty easy. So Yeah. Yeah. Was, Y'all took a lot of naps. We took a lot of naps. You took a lot of Iraqi naps. Were you yes. ever in Iraq no, or just Kuwait? Kuwait? Just Kuwait. And Saudi Arabia and stuff. But never. I saw the Iraqi border. That's How many countries have you been in? 33. You might be Including CIA. Sarab- Sarabaya, Indonesia. That's in uh, Java. East Java? Uh, uh, Surabaya is north, uh, north of north. Java. Yeah. Okay. That's yeah. actually the, the quasi-Christian area. Yeah. Yeah. I was there in uh, 93, right at late 93. Don't start acting like you know stuff, Steve. Ten days. <laughs> Are you been places at that? I can tell you a lot about Surabaya. <laughs> <laughs> We're not talking about brothels. We're not okay. talking about red light districts, okay? <laughs> Semi-Christian area. 2,500 Marines. How, how did you know that's where they are? <laughs> Trust me. I've been to Indonesia, You've been too. there, too. All right. <laughs> I've been to a lot of places in Southeast Asia. Whew. Working with the orphans in the proper way. Don't you call me Jeff Epstein. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't know his, his plane could fly that far. <laughs> I know. The Lolita Express, it can it can get over it can go a long ways. Oh my gosh. Uh Jeff Epstein was caught in Montana. Uh they just didn't tell you it was Hannah Montana. <laughs> my new favorite joke. New favorite joke. Ah, uh, sweet mercy. CIA. Do you feel like the fangs have kind of been taken out of the Central Intelligence Agency these days or is it status quo? Well, I think there's no question that during the Bush years, mm-hmm. they were empowered to do stuff. Mm-hmm. And we did stuff. Yeah. You know? um, and people that said, never again, I'm looking at your banner right here, never again is now. Um, not all of them meant that. Yeah. You know, it's easy to say never again on September 12, mm-hmm. 2001. But then when the hard decisions come to be made, and I'm talking about waterboarding, I'm talking about extraordinary rendition, which, by the way, had nothing to do with. Uh, but nevertheless, the the government decided that the, that they would um, they would facilitate some of those actions. Yeah. Uh, and then the same people that said never again. Oh, now there's an asterisk. There's a qualifier on it, except we can't hurt the terrorist unless we know for sure. That Put them in a little box. Yeah. Lock them up. No bugs. Guantanamo Bay, right? So, yeah, I mean, I, I think the I think the CIA was very empowered in the Bush years mm-hmm. uh, after nine eleven, and I think it was commensurate with w- what the threat was and, and where we were as a society and as a country. And frankly, not knowing, I mean, we can sit here in twenty nineteen and and know that Bin Laden was going to hide in a cave for the next twelve years, and eventually we would kill him, and there would be no other big attacks. But we didn't know that, right? The, the, when the smoke was still coming out of the twin towers, yeah. So. How much um, of that? Yeah. How much of the operations these days are just collecting intelligence versus going out there and actually dealing with the threat? Well, you know the the mission of the uh, of the CIA originally was supposed to be focused on strategic intelligence. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think a, a lot of what they did during uh, Iraq and Afghanistan ended up being tactical intelligence, and, and by that I mean support to the warfighter. So you're, you're supposed to be informing policymakers. A policymaker isn't supposed to know or care whether there's an IED on the corner. Granted, that's a significant and, and grave threat to the warfighter, mm-hmm. but that's supposed to be kind of beyond their purview. Uh, you're supposed to be telling the policymaker, you know, where can we find the WMDs? Does this country have WMDs? What are the plans and intentions of these guys? Uh, so a lot of that get kind of seconded, I would say, to to the warfighting mission. Yeah. And, and certainly when I was in Iraq, uh, I was fine with that. 
I was fine with knowing that the work that I was doing was frankly a lot more to identify threats to, you know, uh, the local national guard unit that had yeah. a patrol street. Okay. Yeah. And that's the thing. I think there's a, I think people have a large misconception about what's going on in the world today. I think one, people want to stick their head in the sand and they want to believe that, um, that there's no real threat or, or it'll happen elsewhere. We don't have to worry about it here, but what is the threat? I mean, what is the, what is the threat level? You know, I, I read a thing this week about, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez wanting to get rid of Homeland Security. You know, look, I don't like the TSA pat down any. Actually, I do. I don't like having to go through TSA <laughs> any more than any. There was a dude yesterday in the airport, Candice. He was rubbing everybody down. Uh-huh. Except me. I felt left out. I felt like I wanted to go back you through. You wanted to loop back around? I wanted to do a loop. Y'all just hold my bags. I'm going to go a ride again. <laughs> I want to ride again. I'll go wait in line. This is fun. Just use your fast pass. Fun coupons. Um, But what do you think about that? I mean, you know, people want to look at it and say, well, this is, you know, Islamophobia or we look at the border situation and say that's racism or it's, you know, xenophobia or something like that. But but we really are kind of being naive about this. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah. I mean, the number one thing that we could do to secure – our freedoms and, and our, our way of life is to secure the border Yeah, uh, because everything else is a guess. We don't know what ISIS is going to look like in six months or two years or what their plans and intentions are, where they're going to attack. Um, there, there may be lone wolf operatives already here. Yeah, We certainly know that if we have a poor southern border, uh, that's, just, that's just a lack of due diligence. It's just a failure of government. Yeah. I mean, we got people coming through from the Congo. You know, I mean, that's Africa. They're the, they're they're the, they're the, the least of your worries. They're the least Believe of me. the worries. You know, but that's been a recent thing is, is Ebola and stuff like that with outbreaks. And, you, know, you guys had Ebola in Texas, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. I oh. gave it to him. Well. I gave it to him. <laughs> I, I did. We did oh, Ebola. I thought you were talking about an STD. <laughs> you said WMD. WMD. That's a totally different thing. I, I think it, it might be. It might also be sexually transmitted, though. I'm not sure. Ebola? Well, I'm sure is. if I had Ebola and we had sex, <laughs> well. there'd be a lot of rumors. But then you'd have Ebola too. So <laughs> it goes, baby. Oh, gotta love the good disease jokes and and gay sex references. Um, it's the CIA. It turns me on. It just turns me on, man. I just gonna, shut up, Candice. You know, whenever Candice started this job, she was a young, innocent girl from Ethiopia. Uh, had already had seven kids, and uh, she was wife number four of the of the mullah. And uh, with seven so, cows, Natalie, <laughs> <laughs> you're not helping. <laughs> and look at her now; she doesn't even blush anymore. Just she does, dead inside. She, you are you are a callous soul, is what you are. Yeah, pretty much. Oh my god, I love you, kid. Weathered the storm. Oh yeah, I love black people too. And you're you're my favorite black person, Candice. Thank you're, you. You're my favorite black person. Thank you, Natalie. Yes, sir. Question. You oh, ask gosh. it. What you got? Oh, okay. I just you, you had mentioned that you had more power um, under um, under forty three. Like, tell us some secrets under under W or under H W. Oh, no, under forty three. Under forty three. Because you got to remember, H W was the head of the CIA at one point. In time. Uh, I don't look. I don't look that old, do I? No, I said forty three. I said forty three. I said forty three. Okay. So tell us a yeah. secret. Well, I wasn't talking about oh. him particularly being under but, HW. Yeah. I was just talking about the CIA in and general. I, I, well, there um, there yeah. was probably more power even maybe under HW. I think the times called for it, though. Right. So tell us some secrets. Give us some good stuff. The camera's not on, is it? Nope. No, no cameras are on. This is not taped at all. Stop tape. So, so there's a uh, there's a guy that lives down the road from me in Arlington, Virginia. His name is John Kiriakou. That's not a real name. It, he's a real real man. He's a real man. He's a he's a real Greek actually. Pseudonym. He's a real Greek, and it's a sad story. And he's a nice guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want you to know he's a nice guy. He's actually a uh, former CIA officer. Was probably got 15 years on me. Uh, and he actually they sent him to the Sing Sing for a couple of years because he was the one that identified the waterboarding project, mm. but not really. So what they got him on was disclosing the identity of a what what was the deal? It was he essentially disclosed to a journalist the identity 
or confirm the identity, I should say, confirm the identity of a an undercover officer. And it was like one of these questions was like, a journalist calls you up. It's like, mm-hmm. hey, Chad, uh, you know Natalie, right? And you're like, yeah, yeah. She works for you, right? Yeah. And, and that was that was essentially the extent of it. And he they and they squashed him. Um, really? And he was actually the is this is just kind of a, a sad and tragic story. But he was actually the only person that went to jail um, as a result of the CIA's extraordinary rendition and or uh, torture programs. It was nobody else was ever punished. Nobody else ever uh, spent time in jail except this guy who um, who essentially blew the whistle um and uh, yeah, and felt the repercussions. So, so no, thank you. <laughs> so, thank you. Uh, so yeah, I mean, he. Uh, what's your favorite interrogation technique, everything. Dan? Yeah, what's your favorite interrogation technique? Uh, I like waterboarding. <laughs> feather cocks. Hi, my name's Chad. I'm a waterboarder. <laughs> feather cocks. Yes. He likes feather cocking. <laughs> Let's waterboard Steve. Let's Party foul. I've been he wants to be feather cocked. <laughs> Me too. Ooh, I got to get me some of that. <laughs> Natalie, why do you give me this party time, Mom? Stay horned. Um, I read, you know, talking about books that you read. Are there private firms out there, say, former operatives, that are hired by, let's say, the DOD or even the executive branch to go out and do certain things that the CIA might be handcuffed to do? My, I mean, my assumption would, as a civilian, would be to say, yes, they exist. They're out there. We hear about those ideas or we read about those things. But, I mean, it's hush-hush. And you don't have to say anything about it. I hope so. <laughs> well, we all hope so. Yeah. You, I, and I would say you should hope so. And, yeah. and here's why. Uh, because when, when the government undertakes uh, something that they want to call espionage or intelligence gathering or collection – or covert action, uh, there's uh, a, a certain set of rules and regulations that they have to follow. Yeah. And ultimately, Congress is the one that's the, essentially has oversight over those uh, projects and, and programs um, and decides what's what's permissible and what's not. And, of course, there's a huge amount of bureaucracy involved between the guy or gal on the ground that's doing the project, getting the intelligence, and all the way up through the chain of command. Mm-hmm. Um, but but here, here's where – Sometimes you can accomplish the same thing outside of traditional mechanisms. So when I left the agency, I started my own government contracting company. And one of the first things that we did was essentially something that the CIA would or could or should do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'll I'll get into that. So what we ended up doing is there's a uh, – you probably heard of Voice of America. So Voice of America sure. is, is the U.S.-funded um, media platform media outlet that is which uh, my favorite voice of america story is when communism fell in gorbachev they found him in the deal he's hiding in the closet listening to voice of america on the radio to find out what's going on the irony be, of that is is huge and, and hilarious it, it's a tremendous meme and and that yeah. organization it goes back to the 60s it goes back to uh you know the iron curtain and us broadcasting into the soviet union telling people that lived under soviet rule what what was actually really going on in the world yeah so that mission has evolved quite a bit, as you can imagine, over 40 or 50 years. Uh, but Voice of America uh, is still basically one vertical of this, of this larger government organization that still does the same thing. So they have, they have one organization uh, that's based in Miami that's called Radio and TV Marti. Right. And the exclusive purpose of Radio TV Marti is to broadcast in Spanish to the people of Cuba and to tell the people of Cuba what's going on in the world. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. It's, it's not – obscene it's not offensive it's not risque um and it's it's under essentially the the you know the the propaganda agency or element of of the u.s government so we uh we were contracted by the government to do a project in cuba and to hire journalists in cuba that could actually get out the story of what was actually happening in cuba so we did uh video journalism and kind of short short form uh two to five minute video segments and ended up selling them to the U.S. government to uh, to broadcast on this radio and TV MRT platform. But how that actually occurred was was in many ways more similar to what you would do in an intelligence operation than a news gathering operation. And and the reason is simply because it's illegal to collect news in Cuba. Mm. So if you want news, if you want to hire a reporter in Cuba, 
you're automatically breaking the law. So you can't just do that. You have to have a permission slip from the Castro regime. Um, so w- what we did is we brought these guys. We, we, we identified a handful of dissidents, uh, both in Guantanamo and, and in Havana. We brought them out of the country. We trained them to be journalists, and we sent them back in with basically prosumer journalism equipment. And for five years, they, they reported everything that was going on in Cuba, not reported as a spy, but reported as a, as a, as a free and independent journalist. Yeah. So it's, what it is to say is that, you know, to your question, can contractors do more than the government? Well, yeah, because this kind of work, you, you would never be able to do that in the agency. Yeah, because the CIA going into Cuba, like it's, it's just radioactive. I mean, it would be ringing alarm bells all the way up to sixteen hundred Pennsylvania Avenue. Mm-hmm. But journalism, independent journalism, supporting essentially the same type of objective, the same end goal, is permissible yeah. and doable. You look at recent history. You know, they they get Bo Bergdahl back, and they release some of the worst terrorists. You know, that's the legacy. You know, I have you got Joe Biden who's running for president right now saying that's the, my most proudest thing about serving in the Obama administration is not even one hint of scandal. The whole damn eight years was a scandal, if you ask me. OK, and and stuff like that, you know, you, you're going to you're going to take these guys out of Gitmo. You're going to release them back into the wild, so to speak. You know, they're radicals. You know, they wish nothing but ill and harm to Western culture. In order to get back a guy who, depending on what somebody's opinion, I don't have a very high opinion of a guy like Bo Bergdahl. I understand diplomacy, but at what point do you draw that line and say, we're doing bad things here from the government, from the top down? Yeah, well, look, I mean, the, the keep, talk, I got to get more whiskey on this one. Hang on. <laughs> well, here you go, then. If yeah, you don't fill me up. All right. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Look, uh, you, you don't do diplomacy with a, with a group, um, and, and I'm not even going to say it's the Taliban because the guys that were the guys that were um, uh, imprisoning Bo. Uh, I mean, it, it was it was really um, uh, it was it was really far far more extremist groups than the Taliban. Yeah. So to to make a to make an arrangement with them to to release known Al Qaeda affiliates out of Guantanamo. I mean, it's in the best case scenario, it's just bad information. The worst case scenario, I don't even want to contemplate that. I mean, why? That's your right. I mean, you don't want to. You don't even want to start thinking about the worst case. Yeah, because we know what that is. I mean, there are things that could happen that make nine eleven look like a small event. You know, and you know we've looked at this now for the last twenty years and said it's not a matter of if; it's a matter of when does somebody get their hands on a suitcase nuke or, mm-hmm. or something of that. You look at Iran. What are their capabilities? For the longest time, our concern was North Korea. Wasn't a matter of did they have nuclear technology and capability? It was could they deliver the payload? And of course, you know that was that was ultimately where they kept failing. But all it takes is somebody that strategically places that in New York, D.C., or L.A., and you know Las Vegas, something like that. What do you think the potential of something like that happening in the near to distant future is? It is it a sooner or later? Or have you thought about it? Is there a way to even know? I I don't think there's a way to know. I, I think my gut is that it's probably near certain in the future. And I won't say the near future. Yeah. Uh, but the, the world kind of evolves and, and moves on a certain trajectory. Um, and, and just like we see, you know, microchips getting, you know, smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller technology uh, growing and giving us capabilities that we couldn't have only dreamed of uh, a couple of years ago. It's becoming easier and easier to do these things. It's becoming easier and easier to uh, to, to be a lone wolf and, and to be yeah. a lone wolf that has much more um, lethal potential than, you know, a, a guy with a semi-automatic. So I, I think I think the key is to address the reality of it. And I think one of the failures of government is to properly prepare the public for that eventuality. Yeah. And that's that's going to. Well, w did it. 43 duct tape. It's all well, about the duct tape. You just got to tape your window shut. That's the deal, man. Is that a, really? <laughs> yeah. Oh. That was that was that was W's big deal. Make sure you got duct tape. And iodine pills. <laughs> I listen. I watched Chernobyl and jump right on Amazon. Me, me and Party too. Foul. We bought us a bunch <laughs> of iodine pills. You know, <laughs> like you're not taking me out alive. Or, or I'm Money not going out. You, you know the guy that wrote that? 
Who? No. Ted Cruz's college roommate. Ted Cruz's college roommate. Really? Yeah, I had a moment of respect for the guy after watching Chernobyl, and I just pushed it aside again. <laughs> I couldn't get past yeah. the British accents. Like, that, they have British actors playing Russians, and that bugged me. That, that you know I mean? Like, try to use a Russian. Well, I mean, I, it, you, you know, whatever. But it's good. It's, did you like it? I, I, I enjoyed it. I thought it was good. I thought it, it was, was good. Good, good storytelling. I thought it was good. I think it's a piece of It's amazing. You know, here's something that happened. What, 86? 86 was Chernobyl. Yeah. You know, you look at you look at something in just that recent, you know, you're looking at 30 years and people don't know that story. They don't know that story, but it shows you how much uh intelligence was covered up by the Russian government, you know, in 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 how much they controlled what was getting out in that situation and still affecting the world. I mean, yeah. information is everything. Information is everything. Like you were talking about in Cuba, what you do, you know, putting that information out there. I mean, even on a very minute schedule, what we or, or uh, scale, what we do through the podcast of trying to raise awareness. Like I, we have fun on this podcast a couple of times a week. You know, we have a good time. We have a good time. It's party time, mom. It, stay horned. Um, <laughs> talking to my mother, she's right there in that lens. Hi, mom. <laughs> CIA, don't mess with me, mom. I know guys. I know people. I'm watching you right now, Ma. Look at me. Anyway, we have a good time. But I try to we try to be as informative as possible because one of the biggest things that bugs me is people, especially Americans, we're so spoiled that we keep our heads in the sand. We really don't know what's going on on a global scale. We don't know what's going on out there. We don't realize what the world thinks of us as a culture, as a nation, as a people. Um sometimes we don't care. So and most of the time, and we that's don't fair care. enough, especially in Texas. Yeah, well, um, shit in Texas. I don't think you need to care, mom. I don't think you need to care. Yeah, I think you need to know. Need to know. That's I right. I think you need to know, and I think that's uh, if you pull back up the front page of the USA Today, mm-hmm. uh, the veterans that would say Iraq, Afghanistan wasn't worth it. Uh, first of all, I guarantee you they would say they would go again. Sure, because was it worth it? Doesn't mean yeah. Was it a smart decision? It means the question that I'm supposing, superimposing over it is, would they go and have the same experience and be the battle buddy uh, to the guy to the left or the right of them? And they, I would almost guarantee it. 100%. What do you got, Steve? No, I was just, I was just agreeing with him. That's a, that call of duty to serve. And yeah, they do it again. I seriously want to waterboard you. Let's do it. (laughs) I seriously. I want to take him just to the precipice of death. Somebody go give me a wet sheet. <laughs> I just want to soak your head. It don't take much. <laughs> I hate you. Oh, my gosh. that What you just said is very profound. I don't think that you need to care. You need to know. And that's a big deal. And that's comforting in a big way. It is comforting. Uh, scary yet comforting because, you know, there's folks out there who are doing the work, who are doing what needs to be done. And we do live in a great country. We really do. And and I always say we're a great country because we got men and women who are willing to go out there and do do the hard stuff. That that are willing to take take the sacrifice or potential sacrifice. Mosul. Where's that? Where's my movie? Here it is. Look here folks. And Dan and I are gonna go to dinner here in a little bit. We're gonna drink some whiskey. We need a steak. And he's going to tell me the real stories. I'm wearing a wire. (laughs) (laughs) I kid, Dan. Don't kill me. (laughs) Mosul, I want you to get it. Where can people get a copy of this movie? They can get it on iTunes or Amazon. They can also go to mosul-film.com and buy the DVD or Blu-ray. There's a lot of extra information on the website, too. So uh, if you really want to get into the story and understand the characters and the background, that's... It's on the website, Mosul-Film.com. Mosul, M-O-S-U-L, dot film, dot com. Go get it. Go get it. Go get it. And uh, go to Dan's website, too, and read what he does. You won't understand a single word that it says. You know why? Because it's, <laughs> it's, it's governmental doublespeak. Nobody has a clue what he does. You have uh, – where else can people find you? Do you want to be found? Uh, yeah, if I want to be found. How clandestine are you, Dan? Uh Look, I'll say that we're hoping to do a uh, a screening in Houston, actually, Good. in the beginning of August. Um, 
I don't think we talked about a screening in Dallas, but it does seem like there are some Patriots up here. Need to do it right here at the yeah. Blaze Studios. That's th- what we need to do. I think we could do it here. We could do it here. We could have a big crowd here. Yeah, we got the space. People don't know. But right over there, just across the way, right over there, where Glenn Beck sits down with his polished rear end. It <laughs> is the largest sound stage between L.A. and New York. We could do it right here. I love you, Glenn. It's an incredible space. Really, it really is. Yeah. yeah. It is. Coming for you, Beck. Me and the CIA. <laughs> Glenn Beck. One day, I believe in Glenn. He's going to make something of himself. He really will. One day. He's going to be. He's, well, he's, gonna be. he's already got the Darth Vader mask. I think, I, I think he's yeah, already. I that? think he's there. Do you ever see him try on the ruby red slippers? That's a freaking uh, Yeah, right that's, uh, that's after hours. After hours is the blaze. <laughs> yeah, huh? There's a lot of heel clicking going on in <laughs> yeah. here, Dan. Toe tapping. 20 toes, baby. Heels to Jesus. What Put do you know? in the playpen, pass the gravy, paint the pantry. Anyway, enough about sex. I want you to go get the Mosul film. I want you to go get it. Go to Amazon. You can go to uh, iTunes, and you can get on Mosul.film.com. Dan Gabriel, you're my brother. I appreciate you, man. Thank you for coming. Thank you for getting on an airplane. Thank you, sir. And hang on. Let me get over here where I can get to you. Thank you, buddy. appreciate you, man. It. Now, we're going to go eat a steak. Yeah, tonight. let's do it. You're going to take this crew, whoever. Natalie, is Joseph coming over? Yes. Good. By the way, difference between cows. Yeah. Six, seven cows in a dowry. Are they Texas cows? Because... There's, Dude, that's three. That's, that's she's a three cow woman in Texas. Yeah, she's a three. Cow uh, this is what I wanted to point out. <laughs> yeah, might go far away from me right now. <laughs> yeah. So there is a film out there. It is the it is the story of uh, I think it's Johnny Johnny Lingo Johnny. It's a Mormon produced film about he buys his wife. It's 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 a symbolic story of redemption, right? About him him purchasing his wife with seven cows. Because the, the father was only asking three, but he paid seven, so he overpaid for it. You might need a symbolic <laughs> but he story wanted of redemption to because that's what she this. was worth. She was a she was a seven cow woman. Okay. Yeah, we'll look that up. This is just really sad. Now. <laughs> it's because you're an American now. See, you've forgotten your roots. You've forgotten your Ethiopian. Have you seen the Ethiopian cow? (laughs) (laughs) Neither have any Ethiopians. (laughs) Not in a long time. You know, Ethiopia used to be the. This is what this is what bad government will get for you. Ethiopia was once known as the breadbasket of the world. It was one of the most flourishing agricultural countries on the planet. Bad government took care of that. AOC, we're not doing a socialism thing. What else you got to push? What else? What, I, what do we got? Does he need to do anything? Does he need to say anything else? Oh, no? I see you giving him. He, I see him up here giving hand, hand signals. signals. As long as I don't see you doing this, <laughs> right. you know, cutting my throat. From, yeah, yeah. I'm like, oh, shit. time to go. Time to go. <laughs> Thanks for jumping on a plane, Dan. I mean, uh, gosh, Mosul, go get the film. We're gonna see you next time for Dan Gabriel, Party Foul, the Texas legend Steve Helms. Now, hot news, Natalie. Candy's the queen of the Ethiopians and the puppet master at the helm of the Starship Studio 22. Chad, pray the show. Tell a friend. Rate, review. We love y'all. God bless. Talk to you next time. Bye.